You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's Word to Mark chapter 11. If you're a visitor here over the summer, we've been looking at different parables, and we're going to look at the uh, parable of uh, the fig tree. Mark chapter 11, I'm going to read from verse 12 to verse 25. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Amen. This is actually a very, very difficult part of the Bible because when you look at it even cursorily, doesn't it look at the beginning as though like Jesus was taking the huff? He's a bit petulant. I mean, can you imagine going out, I don't know if you have a garden and you go out and uh, you're looking to see if the strawberry plants has got any strawberries, no strawberries, all right, curse you. And then it uh, collapses or withers and dries. Does that know what this looks like? And then there's the teaching about um, go to say to this mountain and how many misplaced sermons have been preached on that where people say, what is the mountain in your life? You've got a mountain of debt. Just believe You've got this illness, just believe and it will go. Well, this passage is not teaching that Jesus had a bad temper and didn't like fig trees. And it's not teaching that if only you just believe enough, then anything you want will happen. So let's look at what it is teaching. In some ways, what it's teaching is even more difficult than that. I note at the beginning, the extraordinary sentence, verse 12 that the one who could feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish is the one who goes hungry. And we need always to remember how Christ limited himself and suffered for us. We note also that on his way to Jerusalem, he was going to die. And in the context of what we're looking at, we must never forget, we'll come back to this, the suffering of Christ. Um, And why he suffered, the whole point of the fig tree is 
that Jesus requires his disciples to be fruitful. This miracle is the only destructive miracle. It's the only negative miracle. And I think it illustrates not the petulance of Jesus, nor the fact that he was hungry, but I think it illustrates the seriousness of fruitlessness in the life of those who profess to be his people. So let's look at it in that light. And let me begin just simply by asking what you want. What do you want? In the words of the Spice Girls, what do you want? What do you really, really want? Um, Sorry. (laughs) There are some of you who are going, Spice who? Uh, Just be thankful you missed that era of British culture. Uh, But tell me what you want, what you really, really want. That's really what I'm trying to say to you. I mean, what do we really, really want? If you could do the genie thing with the three wishes, you know, what do we want? We want health, I suppose. We want money. We want to get into, um, maybe we want to have a relationship. Maybe we want to get married. Maybe we want to get into university or get out of university. There are different things that we want. Jesus is indicating here that no matter what the desire you have, and I'm talking here particularly to Christians, but also you'll see this applies to non-Christians. The greatest thing that we can look for is fruit, spiritual fruit, that comes from knowing we are Christ's. The Jesus who goes into Jerusalem on a donkey to die is the one whom we follow. Being religious doesn't work with this Jesus. When we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about following Christ. Now, I think the fig tree parable or the curse of the fig tree, and we're treating it as a parable because it is a, it's an illustration. It's not, as I said, Jesus uh, just kind of showing off or being petulant. I think that the curse of the fig tree is the curse of humankind. It's a parable of unfulfilled potential an unfulfilled promise. It's the curse of profession of faith without the practice of that faith. Isn't that one of the saddest things that you ever experience? A human being who's lovely, who's a nice person, and yet at the end of their days, you look back on their life or maybe not even at the end of their days, you look at their life as it is just now, and it's just so sad. I took a funeral of a lady from here once who was, very few people here now would remember, but she was uh, a lovely person in many ways, intelligent, bright, young, but a drug addict and died eventually from hep C and various other complicating factors. And I remember saying at the funeral, And it was hard for the people who were there because I had to be honest. But to say the tragedy of her life, what it was a wasted life. And I feel that uh, almost the worst thing that can happen to any of us is not an illness. It's not dying because we're all going to die. It's not having the various disasters and things that occur. The worst thing that can happen to us is to have a wasted life. Now, when I was thinking about this, I like reading a man called John Flavel, who's an English uh, Puritan from the 17th century. And I just, to me, 
he has, there's a depth in Flavel that he just feeds my soul. And uh, I read this beginning of this week when I was thinking about this, and I thought it was helpful. And forgive the length of the quote, but bear with it. I've translated it a little bit into modern English. Um, Flavel says this, When you come under preaching, you are sowing seed for eternity, which will spring up in the world to come. Preaching and hearing may be considered in two ways, physically or morally. As regards physically, these acts are quickly over and pass away. Now, I realize that sometimes sermons don't sound as though they're quickly over, you know, but never mind. Flavel says they are quickly over. You can endure it. Try watching test cricket. That takes a long time, but it won't, this won't take that long. This is what he says. I shall by and by have done preaching and you shall have done hearing. This sermon will be ended in a little time. Now, remember he was a Puritan, so he would think that the length of the sermon you're going to get this morning, he would regard that as fairly trivial. Um, but he said, this sermon will be over. A couple hours, it'll be over in a little time. But the consequences, therefore, will abide forever. Therefore, he says, for the Lord's sake, do away with formality. No more drowsy eyes or wandering thoughts. Or when you come to attend upon the ministry of the gospel, that such thoughts as these might penetrate your minds. And these are the thoughts he suggests. The word I am going to hear will quicken or kill, save or damn my soul. If I sit dead under it and return barren from it, I shall wish one day that I had never seen the face of that minister nor heard his voice that preached it. There is a cursed formality. Now, the opposite of formality in the sense that Flavel is using it is not um, being informal. You know, formality, I'm dressed in a suit and a tie one day. Uh, or, or informal, hey, look at me, I'm just really casual. That's not what he means. What he means by formality is this. People who go through the motions. You know, how are you? Fine. People who go through the motions in their life. There's no heart. There's no meaning. There's no passion. It's just formal. It's religion. It's the kind of religion that you say, right, we do this, 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 and let's hope it's over because I've got to go back and do what I really enjoy. And Flavor says, this is the word of God that you're hearing. How dare you be formal about it? You cannot be formal. This has got to go right into your very being. The opposite of formality is spiritual life. The disciples, when they come to the fig tree are astonished because the fig, the fig tree is withered from the roots, which does, I think, the main point of Mark here is to show the power of Jesus. But I have this image in my head of Jesus standing before me, standing before you, and saying, I chose you. I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Where is it? Where's the fruit? What is he looking for? Verse 22, have faith in God, Jesus answered. He's looking, first of all, for faith. There's a kind of risky commitment of faith. We often talk about what can be done. We have the wrong kind of idealism. We have wishful, uh, irrational, and blind hope. On the other hand, and that's not biblical faith, by the way. On the other hand, there is a realism which can be crippling because it does not take God into the reckoning. If you and I really knew what we were like, if you knew what the person beside you was like, if you knew what your family were like, really what they were like, if you knew what the culture was like, if you knew what this church was like, 
I think in the morning, you wouldn't want to get up. And if you knew what your own heart was like, you would despair of ever being able to do anything. That's realism. That's the way the world is. I've just had a, just a most extraordinary storm of, of, of things happening in this coming week, this past week. And uh, somebody wrote me and said, how dare you say that human beings are fallen? Prove it. Well, where do you begin there? I just, I, I'm G.K. Chesterton. He once wrote to the Times, Dear sir, you ask what is wrong with the world. I am, yours sincerely. Well, I, you want to prove fallen human nature? I'm here. And so are you. We're all fallen in that respect. But if you allow things to overwhelm you, what's happening there is you're not taking God into account. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Here's the ironic thing. If you ask God to show you what things are really like, you will be so burdened by your own sin, by other people's sin, by everything that's going on around, that you won't be able to stand. It's why we don't want to know the future. We need to know the person who holds the future in his hands. We don't need to know the future. We walk by faith and not by sight. That doesn't mean blind hope. It means faith in God, in his son, in his word, and in his promises. And that's why here, Jesus talks about faith in the context of prayer. Mark notes this throughout his gospel. I don't have time to look at them all, but Mark 1, 35, 6, 46, 14, 32 to 40. What Jesus tells us is that prayer is the greatest expression of our faith. Time in prayer is wasted if we don't have faith. Faith is not real if we don't pray. It is central to real discipleship. So when we come to God in prayer, we have faith that he is there. We have faith that he listens. We have faith in his character. And we have faith in his word. Now from that, verse 24, comes this fulfillment or this fruitfulness. I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. He uses uh, this idea of the fig tree and the mountain. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, believes that what they'll say will happen, it will be done for them. Do you believe that literally is a question I am asked? The answer is, what do you mean literally? You need to understand, as with all the scripture, what it means in context. The ancient people believed that mountains had roots which went way down to the depths of the earth. Job 28.9, man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. Moving mountains was and still is a proverbial saying. 1 Corinthians 13.2, if I have the gift of prophecy, it can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Jesus talks about having faith as small as a mustard seed. You can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Christ is coming to the Mount of Olives. He's got to face up to there the most incredible difficulties. So what is he saying? He's not saying you can be a magician. He's not saying, and now for my latest trick, Ben Nevis, jump in the sea. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this, when you begin to see things as they are, very often they really are mountains. You think what's in your life. Now some of you, you're, you're just, you couldn't care less because everything's going great for you, everything's happy, everything's wonderful. 
But some of you are faced with a massive wall. You're faced with an illness that you didn't even know that you had. You're faced with a situation that's absolutely horrendous. You're faced with sin and difficulty that you were not aware existed in your heart. Never mind anybody else's. And it just looks absolutely overwhelming. And Jesus says, yeah, but listen. If you have faith in God, then. Now, it doesn't mean that God is at our beck and call. It assumes that we're asking for things which are not sinful and things which are in accordance with the will of God. We can only remove the mountains God wants removed. James 1, 6, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Now, here's a really key mistake that people make. Let's imagine that you're ill and you read James 1 and you read about the elders anointing you with oil and so on. You think, right. I've just got to have enough faith. And I'm I'm going to use an illustration I've used before, but for me it was very personal. I had a friend, uh, 17 years old, in a wheelchair with muscular dystrophy. And I remember just being converted and going to a meeting where a faith healer, a Christian, stood up and said to him, if you had enough faith, you could get up out of that wheelchair. I've never in my life wanted to hit a Christian as much as I wanted to hit that man. Uh, It was the most cruel and vicious thing. We had a, a, a student in this congregation who went across to clan and was told that her cancer was sinful. And if only, if only she had enough faith, she could get up out of the wheelchair. At that point, I, I was grown a lot, a lot as a Christian. I didn't want to hit the person, but I did go to them and say, you are way out of line, you are way out of order, and what you've just said is blasphemous. It's horrendous. That is not what is being taught here. This is what the faith is. And not doubting. The faith is that you go to God with the situation and you have faith in God that whatever happens, it works out for good. You're not going telling God, God, you've got to give me this, you've got to give me that because I know what's good. You're going to say, Lord, I trust you so much that even if I don't get what I want, I know that it will be for my good and for your glory. We come to God with our problems and difficulties, not as God as a slot machine, answering everything according to the way that we want. But neither, I mean, there's far too many people come, by the way, in prayer, generally vague prayers. We need to be specific in prayer. It's right to pray for healing. It's right to pray um, for particular things. Even the very small details of life, it's right to pray for them. But what it's not right to do is to think, if only I pray that God will save four people, he will. No, he won't. It's not on your or my beck and call. We need to be prepared to accept God's guidance. We need to pray expectantly. 1 John 5, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. That's a fruitful life, a fruitful prayer life. Then verse 25, forgiveness. Look how he ties it in. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, prayer is not magic. It takes place in the proper environment. The proper environment is the environment of forgiveness. God forgives us, and so we can approach him. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. A lack of a forgiving spirit always destroys real prayer. It's why sometimes I think about enemies, people I don't like. Um, 
And do you know this? It's really, really hard, impossible to pray if you don't forgive them. I was in a debate this week with somebody who just was the worst kind of possible person for me to debate with. And it was just so infuriating and so, and you know, and I remember just even in the middle of it, just sitting praying, Lord, you have to help me to, to forgive this person. I can't like him, but at least help me to forgive him. You know, smarmy so-and-so. And, and, and do you know this? It actually did help. It did help. But I think that's just a small illustration. I think for, for many of us, one of the reasons that we don't bear fruit is because we're carrying resentment. We're carrying bitterness. There are things that happened many years ago. There are things that happened months ago. There are things that happened yesterday. But within us, still eat away the root of bitterness. Prayer should be fervent. Prayer should be sincere. Prayer should be in the name of Jesus. But it must always include forgiveness. We cannot look for mercy if we're not willing to extend mercy. Malice, bitterness, resentment, party spirit. We can't have that. We have a great privilege in approaching God. We have a great forgiveness ourselves. If you are offering your gift at the altar, says Jesus, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Prayer is done in that sense in the spirit of love. Now, let's return just to this passage just to kind of finish off. The power of Jesus. We pray in his name, we pray to him, and we pray through him. How does that work for each of us here? Some of you are not Christians. And I just simply say this. Why don't you pray to him today in accordance with his will that you become one of his people? Why not ask him to come into your life? Why not ask him to save you? Why not ask him to deal with the mountains in your life, the mountains of unbelief, the mountains of fears and doubts? Why not just ask him, Lord, Take those away. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And for those of us who are Christians, I want us to have a holy dissatisfaction. What do I mean by that? A pastor came to visit me this week from another church and greatly, greatly concerned about a movement in Scotland at the moment called the House of Bethel. And he's saying that some of his own people are being drawn away to this because they're coming into church. They're going, this is not enough. This is not good enough. I want to live in the supernatural. I want to experience God. And I'm just not doing it in this church. And he's saying, how do we counter this? How do we deal with it? Because it's largely a heretical movement. And it is. I get constantly emails about and adverts about living in the supernatural. And people say, well, there must be more. There must be more. Well, in discussing it, I suggested to him, in actual fact, that what his people are looking for, they say it's more, but it ends up being less. And here's why. Because it's Jesus plus. And Jesus plus is always minus. It's actually about them. And I think that's true not just of that movement. I think it's true of me. I think it's true of us. That we're so self-absorbed. We're so me, me, me. My feelings. What I want. What I need. We lack fruit because we lack the Spirit. We lack the Spirit because we're not looking to Christ. We should be wanting to see Jesus. Um, This evening I'm I'm going to be looking at what it means to be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. 
But I think if you're like me, are you not, are you, are you not tired of dead worship? Sometimes you go into church, it's so dead. It doesn't matter the, the denomination. Sometimes it's just so dead. And sometimes you just feel so dead. Are you not tired of a stone-cold heart that somebody's telling you about the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ? And you know this, you couldn't care to. Who's, yeah, yeah, you'll say the words and you'll say amen and you'll, you'll have the right things and you could go to a Bible study and do it. But within yourself, there's no movement. There's no life. It's just coldness. It's coldness. You're not tired of complaining Christians and of the lack of gospel impact, the lack of power, it seems. Well, this is the image, the picture that I have of Jesus. In Psalm 22, it talks about him being on the cross and the agony he went through and the suffering he went through physically and spiritually. And yet at the end of that Psalm, it says that he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He will see the fruit. What is the fruit of Jesus on the cross? Is it people walking around in supernatural power? No, it's not. The fruit of Jesus on the cross is people who follow Jesus today, people who love Jesus, people who live Jesus, people who care for other people because they love Jesus. And I have this image of Jesus standing before me like the fig tree, expecting fruit because he died for me. And he says, three years? Three years? What fruit has there been in three years? You know, you sing it. You talk about it. You tell others. Where is it? I'm looking for the fruits. And I think that for many of us, if we're being honest, we would look and we would say, you know this, Lord? I, I can't see any. Maybe there isn't any. And at that point, we could finish and say, we're done. Christ doesn't want us. Except there's another image in Revelation 3 of Christ standing at the door of his church and knocking. And asking us to open the door that he may come in, that he may sup with us. And he says to us, I know your works. I know your reputation. I know that you're dead. I know that you're cold. I know all of that. But I died to bring you fruit, even into the hardest heart and the stoniest ground. And you say, Lord, 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 but but that happened before, but this happened again. And look at me now. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. But I came to bear fruit. And I think that that is just such a wonderful, wonderful image for us and helpful thing for us. Please stop looking at all the people around you. Stop looking at yourself in the sense of looking for things for yourself, how you feel, what you want. And just imagine Christ standing before you saying, where's the fruit? What's your answer? And if you're like me, and most of us here, I think, you will bow down before Christ and you will say, Lord, have mercy on me. And he says, that's okay. That's okay. That's why I came. Again, let me quote Favell. Here is our relief under all discouragements from abroad and at home. The work is Christ's. The power is his. He is with us and we are workers together with him. 
There was a time when 3,000 souls were born to Christ at one sermon. It may be now 3,000 sermons may be preached and not a soul converted. Yet let us not be discouraged. A time of eminent conversion. Imminent conversion is promised and to be expected in these latter days. Ezekiel 47.9. When the living waters of the gospel shall make everything to live, whether they come. And when the fishers, i.e. the ministers of Christ, shall not fish with singles as they do now, taking now one, then another single convert, but shall spread forth their nets and enclose multitudes when they shall fly as a cloud and as doves to their windows. God now opens a door of opportunity beyond expectation. Oh, that the hearts of ministers and people were suitably enlarged and the people made willing in the day of his power. See, when we become self-absorbed, we, we, we forget about the glory of Christ. We reduce the glory of Christ to what fits our appetites. And our appetites are so, so pathetic and tiny. But when we look to Jesus, when he comes to us and says, where's the fruit? And we say, Lord, there's not much. And we look to him and what he did and the encouragement he brings. We realize that the gospel is this rich rich river of the water of life that everywhere it goes life comes and as the life works in us as we receive the word of God as Christ speaks to us then everywhere we go everyone we speak to it's like an infection it's like a disease the power of God goes in that sense I believe that this church and the church in this country as a whole we are going to face really, really difficult times ahead. And I thank the Lord for that because I believe that that will make us depend solely and utterly and entirely on Christ. And there will be this enormous fruitfulness. I honestly think that it's such an exciting time to be in Scotland, in God's kingdom. Scotland's not God's kingdom, but you know what I mean. In, in God's kingdom, in Scotland. It, it's such an exciting time. Once it, it, if, if you look at it from one angle, it's so oppressing and overwhelming. But if you look at it from another angle, the angle of Christ, it is something that is extraordinary. We are fig trees in the wilderness. May God grant that we would have fruitfulness and that our hearts would be enlarged and the people made willing in the day of his power. Amen. We're going to sing a song that's unusual to sing at the end because at the end people say, oh, we'll sing an uplifting song. And I think this is an uplifting song, but maybe we have different ideas. Um, it's the song Abide With Me. Um, fast falls the even tide. It's always associated with death and funerals. But I think it's a lovely song because it's just simply saying, Lord, whatever happens, I can't do it without your spirit. Grant me that spiritual fruitfulness. Come to me. And I'm just saying to you, whatever your circumstances, pray this song as your prayer in response to what you have heard. Ask the Lord. Say, Lord, don't, don't cast me aside. Don't leave me as a fruitless fig tree. Abide with me. Give me your spirit that I may bear fruit to the glory and, and beauty of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing. Abide with me. I think the words should be up in the Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk 
For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.